Good morning, everybody. It's nice to be back in Mafra. Um, I'll be back on Friday next week. Actually, I'll be here on Wednesday too. Um, uh, the, the Bible says, blessed in the sight of the Lord. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Have you ever thought about that? Uh, it's a terrible tragedy to lose someone. There's no question of that. Uh, because we're humans and we can't imagine any other way of being a human except this way. And so it's sad to say goodbye, there's no doubt about that. And Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus. So it's all right for Christians to be sad. Um, God understands that. Uh, And yet, we have this unconquerable hope, don't we? Because we know that Jesus has been raised from the dead. And uh, without the resurrection of the dead, we have no Christian faith at all. Uh, Jesus didn't come to be a moral teacher. He came... To, to build the bridge that permits sinners like us to be welcomed into God's eternal kingdom. And because we believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, uh, we share the hope that Nathan spoke of before, that we too will be raised, our mortal bodies will be raised. And uh, that's a hope that keeps me going. And it's great to remember that at Easter time, isn't it? But it's good to remember it. I mean, every Sunday's Easter Sunday. Uh, we're here in the power of the risen Lord Jesus this morning and it's, it's great to remember that and to rejoice in it. And uh, speaking of rejoicing, we're going to rejoice in God's word to us from Psalm 117. Um, Psalm 117 is famous for two reasons. Apart from, Does anybody know what they are? It's the shortest chapter in the Bible. Now have a look at Psalm 119. <laughs> Now, I'm just getting my head around this. Uh, I'd been reading the Bible a long time and turning up to church and hearing the Psalms without ever really realising this. But did you know that there's five books of Psalms? Have you noticed that? Right? That meant nothing to me until I started doing a bit of work on it. Uh, Is it significant that Psalm 117 is separated by one Psalm from the longest Psalm? Probably. I can't quite explain the connection. But the fact is that the Psalms have been arranged in these five books according to very sound principles. The people who put the books of Psalms together, uh, David didn't do it. David wrote about 70 of them, but he wasn't the one who, who edited it all together. We believe that the Psalms, as we have them now, came together around the time of the exile or sometime after when Israel had been conquered and when Judah had been taken into into Babylon the Psalms came together uh, as this song book and these are the songs that Jesus sang do you ever think about that that was something else I'd never thought about these are songs that Jesus sang now we love Jesus don't we and we want to be like Jesus don't we That's what God's doing with each one of us. Slowly, little by little, we're becoming more like Jesus. And when we sing these songs, when we pray these psalms, these are the things that help Jesus work out who he was and what he was to do. And as we sing them and as we pray them, we're reading words that were really important to Jesus. So therefore they should be important to us too. 
Uh, so let's pray and then we're going to do some serious business with Psalm 117. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, the treasures that it contains. Uh, we come before you this morning knowing that you uh, delight in those who tremble at your word. So we pray that you would help us to, to hear and to listen and to believe. And we ask that you would transform our lives, make us steadily more like Jesus as we uh, encounter these words that were so precious to him. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read the words, Psalm 117. There's no heading. Uh, We just go straight in. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love toward us and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. There you go. (laughs) Have you ever heard the saying, brevity is the soul of wit? Did you learn that at school? It's from Shakespeare's play Hamlet. Um, if you actually read the whole quote, brevity is the soul of... Brevity means, you know, being brief. Um, the soul of wit means this is what it means to be a wise person. Just get the job done. Cut to the chase. Don't beat around the bush. Get to the point. Brevity is the soul of wit. The whole quote goes, Since brevity is the soul of wit and tediousness, the limbs and outward flourishes, I will be brief says Polonius to Queen Gertrude, your noble son is mad. (laughs) I wish I knew this quote back when I was a teacher. (laughs) It would have been very helpful at parent-teacher nights, wouldn't it? (laughs) I would have started my career as a pastor much earlier if I had used that, I'm sure. (laughs) But sometimes a little says a lot, doesn't it? And we like it when people get to the point. I went to a wedding a few years ago. Uh, the, uh, the young man was uh, the son of good friends of ours and he married a girl from Rosedale, actually. And so we went to the reception and I'd never met the parents of the bride or anything like that before. Uh, but at the reception, the father of the bride stood up and his speech began this way. I'm not much good at making speeches. And I thought, oh, no, not another one. Because, you know, I'm paid to go to weddings a lot of the time. Uh, and I've heard a few speeches that start exactly that way. Oh, you know, I'm not much good at making speeches. Oh, you know, because that never stops them from going on and on, right? But this is how the speech went. He says, I'm not much good at making speeches. So Dale, he's talking to his daughter. He says, I want to say today you look beautiful. And Michael, you're a lucky fella. Good luck to both of you. And then he sat down. <laughs> and I'm kidding you not, that was pretty much the guts of it. Brevity is the soul of wit. He didn't beat around the bush. He got right to the point. And that's what Psalm 117 does. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love toward us. And the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Now we could sum that whole psalm up and we could say everyone everywhere, praise the Lord. That's what Psalm 117 is about. Everyone, everywhere, praise the Lord. We know that when we see the Lord in capitals, that's Yahweh. That's the covenant God of Israel, the God of Israel who saves his people from slavery uh, through the death of a lamb. It's famous for being the shortest chapter, but it's also famous because it's right in the heart of the Bible. If you were to count all of the chapters, and I actually did this just to confirm it for myself, you don't want to believe everything you read on the internet. Uh, 
The chapters weren't part of the original Bible. They've been added by later editors. They're helpful because otherwise it's hard to find your way around. But if you were to count all the chapters that led up to this and all the chapters that follow, Psalm 117 is the middle chapter of the Bible. Now, I don't know if that's important. I'm not sure. But it's a pretty good little statement to have right in the heart of the Bible, isn't it? Praise the Lord. Who? All nations. Extol him, all peoples. Why? For great is his steadfast love towards us. And the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. That's the word hallelujah in Hebrew. You all know a little bit of Hebrew. Um, If you know hallelujah, you know some Hebrew. Hallelujah means praise Yahweh. Praise the Lord. So Yahweh is worthy of praise. He's alone worthy of praise. And he will be praised throughout eternity. Now this psalm, short as though it is, it's power packed. It's full of chunky goodness, right? Uh, it takes us all the way back to the beginnings of the Bible story and it takes us all the way to the end of all things and on into eternity. It reminds us that God is doing a work in the world to save a people for his name. Back in Genesis 22, he promised that Abraham would have offspring. Now remember that Abraham had no children when God started talking to him and making promises and God promised that he would have offspring But the word offspring that he uses in Genesis 22 is actually a singular. It's a person. There's going to be someone from your family tree, Abraham, who will bring my blessing to the nations. So when you see the word nations here, don't skip it. Don't sort of jump over it too quickly. Uh, That's really important. It's a key word that takes us back to what God is going to do. God is going to rescue people for his glory from the whole world, from the nations. And he promised that back in Genesis 22. So God is going to restore blessing to the whole world through one of the descendants of Abraham. Now we've already seen a few weeks ago, because we're going through these psalms that Jesus and the disciples sang as part of the Passover, uh, which we celebrate at Easter time. Psalm 113 verse 3 looks ahead to the day from the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be its praise. From the rising of the sun, in other words, from east to its setting in the west, in other words, everywhere. There's going to come a day when the God of all the world, the God who has revealed himself to Israel, is praised by everyone. Now, won't that be good? Right? Is God being praised by everyone at the moment? Are there some people who are just a bit snitchy about God? There are some people who hate him. I read a story a few years ago about a man, one of the world's most famous atheists, and when I read what he had to say, he actually admitted in there, I actually... It's not that I don't believe in God, I just hate him. And there are people around like that. So we've been praying this morning for our Prime Minister, which is a good thing to do. He's a public Christian. And you don't reckon that gets up some people's noses? And it's not because they just don't... It's not that they're denying his right to be religious. There are some people who have a deep hatred of God. And we find that in the Bible. We find it admitted in the Bible. We shouldn't be surprised that we don't live in a world where people fight fair when it comes to matters to do with our God. But anyway, what did it mean for Jesus to sing this psalm at, um, at Passover time? We're going to need to consider that as well because within that, we'll, it'll help us to understand it. But as we, look, as we look at it, let's have a look and see what's going on. So what does it mean to praise Yahweh? 
We've talked about this a bit before, but it means to, to, to speak about the positive attributes. So if you praise anyone, it means you're speaking about the positive attributes of someone. Uh, another way of saying it is you're glorying in them or you're almost boasting about them. How good is God? Right? Remember when Scott Morrison was elected? His, um, his, ele- his, his winning speech, his, his uh, victory speech, he said, How good is Australia? Now, he met us all to agree, didn't he? Didn't he? Is it just me? Or... I, think, I think Australia's a pretty good place to live, right? That's why so many people want to come here, right? And so he says, how good is Australia? He's actually inviting us to think about that and to praise it, to almost boast in it. Now, you know, we should never get too far ahead of ourselves and become anything less than humble, but... But we want to boast about the goodness of God. And so when we praise him, that's in effect what we're doing. But to praise God means that there's got to be some content. There's got to be something that we praise him for. Now, some years ago, I was invited to go to Canada and do some music over there. And one of the things that we played at was what you'd call a tent revival meeting. And uh, I'd never been in an experience like this before. Um, and there's lots more that I could tell you about it, which I'll have to tell you over lunch, or perhaps you'll invite me over for tea and I'll bore you with all my stories. Uh, but the, the format of the evening was pretty loose and open, and just a succession of people came up and either sang a song or, or said something. And, and this went on for some considerable time. And this dear old lady came up, and she took the microphone and stood there and said, "'He is worthy to be praised.'" He is worthy to be praised. He is worthy to be praised. He is worthy to be praised. She went and put emphasis on every possible word and syllable in that little sentence, right? He is worthy to be praised. And that went on, it felt like 10 minutes. It may not have been quite that long, but boy, it was a long time. I'm giving you the edited version. But it does beg the question, Why? God is worthy. Yes, he is, but why? Well, our psalm tells us. Praise has to have content if it's going to be valid um, and, and it's good for us to know God and to be able to know him so well that we have things that we want to say about him. Now, when it says there, extol him, that's just another way of saying praise him. That's one of the features of Hebrew psalms that they, they, they repeat themselves using slight variations, but to extol is another way of saying praise him. So praise him all the people, all the nations, praise him all peoples. Um, that means just everybody in the entire world. But why do we praise him? Well, we get that, the answer to that in verse 2. Uh, because of his steadfast love and faithfulness towards us. Great is his steadfast love and faithfulness. Now that word steadfast love, Nathan had us read it before from Exodus 34. It's not the first place that it turns up in the Bible. Uh, You'll find references to steadfast love elsewhere and earlier on in, in the book of Genesis. But steadfast love means a love that doesn't quit. A love that doesn't fail. It's a love that you can devote on. It's a high level of devotion to the object of the love. Not many of us have got that, have we? You know, sometimes when I've been talking to people about God, and and we might be talking about God's love, the one word that always comes out early is I say, oh, God's love is unconditional. Have you come across that one? And it's just as well it is, because ours is entirely conditional. 
Is our love for God any kind of a reflection of his love for us? But we've grown to depend on a God whose love will not fail. His love is steadfast. Now, when the New Testament was written, this idea of steadfast love translates into the concept of God's grace. And if you want an illustration of God's steadfast love, then go back to Genesis 32. Would you turn back there? There's a couple of passages I'd love you to flip through today, and this is one of them. So Genesis 32. Now, this is the story of Jacob. Jacob was a nasty man. You would not have wanted Jacob as your next-door neighbour. He was a liar, he was a cheat, he was a thief. His actual name means deceiver. Right? Jacob was not a nice man, and yet... God chose him to be the instrument through whom he brings, one of the instruments through whom he brings blessings to the nation. But back in Genesis 32, when Jacob is starting to work out who God is and what he wants and and that he can be trusted, this is what Jacob says. Jacob said, so this is verse 9, Genesis 32, Jacob said, God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For only with my staff I crossed this Jordan and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother. So he's pleading with God to spare his life because he knows Esau, his brother, who he's cheated. He wants to kill him, right? And so Jacob's left home to get away from his murderous brother. He's now on the way back and he's pleading with God. But he pleads with God on the basis of his steadfast love and faithfulness. So very often those two words are combined. If you were to search that in a concordance, you should see very often steadfast love and faithfulness. But when you see it here, it's a perfect illustration. Did Jacob deserve God's steadfast love? A liar, a thief and a cheat. Does he deserve God's steadfast love? No. Do I? No. And nor do you. Because we're all good at wanting our own way. And very often, even despite the best intentions of our hearts, we find it ever so easy to lapse back into seeking what's good for me and not what brings God glory. That's the truth of the matter. So I know my sinful condition. I'm quite aware of it. Yahweh's steadfast love is offered to the undeserving. And so when we celebrate it in Psalm 117, yes, it's right to praise and to brag about God because he's the kind of God who doesn't treat us as we deserve. He extends the full riches of his kindness and love to people who very often don't reciprocate. God's wonderful love is given to people who on their own don't deserve it but what does it mean to be faithful what does it mean that God's steadfast love is faithful it means you can count on it I heard a story some years ago uh, a powerful Christian testimony of a man who had gone on to do wonderful things uh, in in children's ministry actually and uh, he told the story of how he became a Christian and it began the day that his mother took him to the city and said, wait there, I'll be back. And she never showed up. So he stayed there because he thought his mum could be trusted and he sat on the edge of a a roadway where his mum told him to sit for two days because he thought she'll come back soon and she didn't. 
Now, wouldn't you think you could count on a mother's love? Wouldn't you? But he couldn't. So he was profoundly let down. But he was rescued by a Christian family who took him in. And and they led him to the Lord Jesus. And so he, he went on from there. But even sometimes our closest kin will let us down. When we talk about God as being a faithful God, we're talking about a God whose steadfast love will never, it's unimaginable that he will ever let us down. And so we praise him for it. Praise the Lord all nations. Praise him all peoples. Why? For his steadfast love and faithfulness. For the love that he extends to people who don't deserve it, a love that will never fail. A love you can rely on utterly. And not only that, it endures forever. Now that takes us through to the end of the Bible story. We're talking about a love that's not just good for the present, but it's good for whatever remains of our future and goes on beyond that. It endures forever. Now, there's an intriguing little word here in verse 2. Why do we praise Yahweh? For great is his steadfast love toward us. So who's the us? Yahweh's the God of Israel, isn't he? Right? But who's being commanded? Because these are commands here. This isn't a suggestion. It's not just a good idea that we're floating by people. This is a command. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. Everyone, everywhere must praise Yahweh. But great is his steadfast love toward us. So who's us? Well, it is everyone. Now, how did Israel think about the nations? If you ask any Jew today, there's two sorts of people, aren't there? Jews and Gentiles. Well, the word that's later translated Gentiles comes from this word nations. And and, and a Jewish person even today speaks about the goyim. And that means everybody but Jews. Everybody but us. But the nations are the goy. And here the psalmist is saying that goyim are going to praise Yahweh. In fact, they must praise him. Now, if you look throughout the uh, the psalms, you'll realise that the nations to Israel are very much like the world is to us. Now, Jesus says we're to be in the world, but not of the world. So the world to us is a threat and at times it's a danger because the world wants to squeeze us into its mould but there are times when the world wants to attack us because they're hostile to the fact that we say that Jesus is the only way to the Father and that's something that will make people cross. So the world is a threat in as much as it wants to conform us, but it can be a hostile place. And that's how Israel was. Israel was surrounded by nations whose gods they worship in idols. And the worship of those gods was very seductive because it often had to do with sex. No one gets tempted to do things they don't want to do and Israel found the worship of the, the idols of the nations quite seductive. 
But as well as that, the nations around did used to like to try to make trouble militarily for Israel. So the nations are a threat militarily and they're a threat as a, as a means of seduction. And yet the call goes out here in Psalm 117 that the nations are to worship. Now we've already seen in Psalm 115 that the gods of the nations are idols and idols can't do anything. And so this psalm here suggests by including in the us all the nations that the people who are going to praise Yahweh aren't just Israel. It includes all the nations as well. So the question then becomes how are Israel's enemies going to be included in the praise of the world's one true God? Can you see that? Because it's a command, praise the Lord all nations, extol him all peoples. Why? For great is his steadfast love towards us. Now if that only meant Israel, that's a bit like inviting people to your birthday party to watch you eat. (laughs) Come to my birthday party, I intend to celebrate and you have the privilege of watching. That wouldn't make any sense, was it? Psalm 117 makes it very clear that the nations, the people who had been the enemies of God and the enemies of his people, both by being idolaters and by being military opponents, they're going to be welcome with Israel to praise the, one, the world's one true God. All people everywhere are to praise him. So that's what the psalm's about. So how does it relate to Jesus? What did it mean to Jesus that he sang this the night before he went to the cross? Now these 113 to 118, the Psalms, they're what we call the Hallel Psalms because they all have that idea of praising Yahweh and these have traditionally been sung by Jews at Passover time. So Jesus, being a good Jew, sang this on the night with his disciples that they celebrated the Last Supper. How does it help him face the horror of the cross? Well, he knows he's going to experience the murderous rage of the nations. Remember Psalm 2? We we preached that back in January. Uh, Go back there. It'd be worth having a quick look at this. Psalm 2. Psalm 2. And and hold that for a moment because Psalm 1 and 2 introduces to the whole collection of 150 and they're like the window through which we need to to read the rest of it. But uh, the psalmist asks... uh, in Psalm 2 verse 1, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now the anointed, that, that's the Hebrew word Messiah. Uh, Yahweh is always going to send a king to rule the nations in perfect justice. And so Psalm 2 is an indication of that. But that king, like Yahweh his God, is going to find that the nations are opposed to him. Now, I said before, I think this is a, a, a very helpful little passage of verses for understanding our world. Does the world like God? Not really. Does the world like Jesus? Not at all. Because the demands of Jesus are uncompromising. But Jesus confronted the rage of the nations when he was crucified so how is it that he can take that on in confidence it's because he believes psalm 117 he believes that his death on the cross is going to accomplish yahweh's purposes 
And he knows from singing this every year at Passover that there's going to come a day when all people do worship Yahweh everywhere. And he knows that his mission on the cross is God's purpose for accomplishing that. So Jesus learns about himself from the psalm that in his spirit he wrote through the inspired author. And he learns what his mission is and he learns now that his mission will succeed. Psalm 2 finishes up at verse 8. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And the last line says, Blessed are all who take refuge in him. In other words, the kingly son. That's how the nations will be welcomed into Yahweh's eternal family. They'll be turned from rebels into worshippers when they take refuge in Yahweh's son. And we know that the king that Yahweh's going to send is the Lord Jesus. So Jesus sings these words and they, they nerve and inspire and encourage him to do what he has to do. Do you think it was an easy thing for Jesus to contemplate going to the cross? Jesus was as human as you and I. And he knew the price he was going to pay. He warned about it three times in the Gospels and the disciples said, don't, don't even mention it. He knew how he was going to die. And yet these scriptures were part of God's instrument for forming him and for helping him to have the courage as a human to do what he had to do so our sins could be forgiven. And Psalm 117 plays its part. But what does Psalm 117 mean for the world? Righto, flip over to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15, Paul tells us, because he quotes from Psalm 117, and this is a clue to, to interpreting it as Christians. Psalm 100, uh, Romans 15 at, at verse 8, Paul writes this, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, that is to Gentiles, uh, to Jews, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. That's a quote from Psalm 18. Again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. That's from Deuteronomy 32. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. That's Psalm 117. So to Paul, it's pretty clear who's speaking in Psalm 117. It's Jesus. And Jesus is the one who's making this call, this command, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, all you nations. We've all become Israelites. Did you know that? I talked about that a little while ago because we have accepted Israel's God by finding refuge in Israel's king. Now the refuge we need to take is to confess our sins and to say, Jesus, you are the only way that I can get to the Father. You are the only way by which my sins can be forgiven. That's finding refuge in the kingly son of Psalm 2. And we have become part of that great company of people that can look forward to enjoying Yahweh's presence and praising him forever and ever because of his steadfast love and faithfulness. So the question then is, how come other people don't get it? 
Why is it that it's so hard to convince people of the the goodness of Jesus and the mercy of God in, in dealing with our most wretched problem, our sinfulness and our estrangement from God? Why is it so hard? I heard a preacher once who said, if you knew him like I knew him, you'd love him like I love him. I remember back in the days when I got first associated with Cairo Christian School, there were people who'd go around and they'd say, send them to Cairo, we'll do the rest. It's almost like, turn them into our school and they're going to come out, not just Christians, but missionaries. Well, I taught there for 11 years and I can tell you, that didn't happen. (laughs) I had a lot of kids that I taught who did not want to be there and they resented the Christianness of the school. So, I love Jesus. Do you? I mean, you you can't think of the cross and and what he did. I am conscious of my sin. But I believe there's a God who, who is good and he can't overlook my sin and I'm just so glad that Jesus has paid the price. Now, you look around at the world and you go, how how are we travelling? Is the world a good place? Going well, are we? And most people would say, no, it's not. But has anybody got a solution? The only solution I can think of is we need our hearts transformed. I was in the uh, hospital the other day, had to go and pick up some medication for Sal uh, down at the Austin Hospital. And um, have you been to hospital lately? There's signs saying you've got to be nice there, right? How long have we needed signs in hospitals to tell us to be nice to people? Right, but you join the queue to get your temperature taken, and you you know just make sure you haven't been overseas where there's a COVID hotspot or something. And in right in front of me was a sign that said, "Our staff are to be respected. Please be gentle and kind and understanding." I thought, "Oh, you want the fruit of the spirit without the spirit?" (laughs) So people like the fruit; they just don't like the source. They don't want the source. So if Jesus is so good, why do people reject him so out of hand? Why is it that it's so hard to convince people? Well, it's a battle that we're in, that's why. It's a battle. But the other thing is, people don't want to believe. And that's, that's the sad reality. And so I think I've told you about the atheist fellow that I spoke to for three hours. And he said to me, at the end of it all, he was a very clever man, he was a scientist, but he said, well, if you're right and I'm wrong, I reckon when I get there I'll have done enough. That's what he said. So I said, that, makes, that means you're not an atheist. I said, you've got doubts. Now, he didn't accept that. But then... In a very rare example of a time when I thought of something clever to say right in the right moment, because it's usually in the car on the way home, right? (laughs) He says, if you're right and I'm wrong, I reckon I'll have done enough. And I, I prayed very hard before I went, and I do believe I was given these words. I said, until you've created your first universe, what would you say that would impress God? Who do you think you're talking to? But I said, if I could prove this was true, would you believe it? And he said, no. Because he didn't want to. That's what we're up against. 
We've got people whose hearts, to quote the prophet Zechariah, are diamond hard because they want to do it their way. And that's a tragedy. But, but, last reading, Revelation 7. If you're ever tempted to think that the Christian mission is hopeless, you've got to go to the back of the book and remind yourself again and again that Jesus didn't die for nothing. So Jesus reads Psalm 117, he sees a vision of the whole world praising Yahweh. All people everywhere praise the Lord. In Revelation 7 at verse 9 we read this. After this I looked, says John, and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So the blessing that God had promised Abraham has been accomplished. It's been returned to the world. The curse has been undone. How? Because Jesus, the faithful kingly son, believed the scriptures that prophesied about him and inspired by the hope that God would yet be praised by everyone from everywhere, he was faithful to death on the cross to buy our redemption, to buy our forgiveness. Now that's good news and I accepted it years ago and I'm glad There's not a day I'm not glad about that. And while many have diamond hard hearts and reject it because they don't want to hear it, there will be some who believe. Jesus' work on the cross will not be for nothing. There will be a fruit in eternity of a a crowd that can't be counted. So we must be realistic about the world that we live in. It's hostile. It's a threat to our, our obedience. And yet there'll be some within it who believe because Jesus' triumph was not for nothing. So we've got to be realistic but hopeful, just like Jesus was. He knew that the nations were raging and he copped that full force on the cross. But he also knew that God would accept his sacrifice and that he would be raised from the dead and there would be a company that can't be counted that give praise to Yahweh's steadfast love and faithfulness for all eternity. So be realistic, but be hopeful, because everyone everywhere will praise God one day. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for these great words in Psalm 117. We give you thanks that you are a God who is full of steadfast love, rich in mercy, we thank you that your faithfulness is something that we can count on and we thank you that the, uh, the word of the Lord Jesus is true and will stand forever. So we who've taken delight in that, we ask that you would help us to be people who are realistic about the world that we live in but who are hopeful for the eventual triumph of the Lord Jesus over all that currently opposes him. We pray that you would grant us courage uh, as people who believe in your word to continue to hold out the word of life, even to people that don't believe. And we ask, Lord God, that you would stir in the hearts of many of them, please. So keep us faithful to these things, just as Jesus was faithful to the very end. And uh, and so we ask that you would grant us success in our mission, please, as you see fit and as you will. Um, Father, we pray all of these things in the name of our Lord Jesus, who loved us and gave himself for us. Amen.